The Bible reading this morning is taken from John, chapter 11, verses 1 to 26, the death of Lazarus. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, He stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is the word of God. Before I start, I just want to acknowledge the lovely music we've had today. That last item was just, uh, just beautiful, really touching. So we're talking today uh, again about the, uh, the I Am. And today it's the I Am, Jesus is the I Am, a specific term, a term that means God. And uh, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. A story of uh, raising of Lazarus is in uh, John 11. And it's one of the most powerful narratives 
that we see about Jesus. And one of the reasons why I think it is so powerful is that we see that a Jesus who is prepared to be vulnerable with his emotions. He is fully human. But also as we read John, we see that it's full of theological significance as well. And we'll look at that later on. But in a, in a, in a nutshell, if you like, Lazarus comes back to, death, back to life after Jesus goes to see him. And he goes back to the same sort of life that he had before. And he resumed normal activities such as sharing a dinner party. Wasn't that nice? <laughs> in John 12 too. <laughs> but the other side was he, he even finds himself uh, with death threats. You see, because the fact that Jesus has brought Lazarus back to life was a testimony to Jesus' greatness, to the fact that he was God. And there were people who did not like that testimony. So poor Lazarus, he, he comes back to life and he's able to have a, a dinner party, <laughs> but, but people want to get rid of him as well. That's not a, not a comfortable situation, is it? And the story opens with the message uh, coming from Jesus about Lazarus being ill. And Jesus deliberately stays where he is rather than going to help in John 11, 1 to 6. But it becomes clear later on in John 11, 41 to 42 that John wants us to understand that Jesus knew from the very start not only that Lazarus would die, but then in answer to prayer, he would return to life. Uh, as you heard, uh, Jesus says that he's going to see Lazarus, that Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the disciples think, well, he must be not too bad then. You know, if he has a sleep, he'll, he'll improve. <laughs> and, uh, of course, we normally expect that. Um, but Jesus had a, a deeper meaning there. And when Jesus arrives at Bethany, a small town not far from Jerusalem, Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. And this is stressed, stressed twice in John 11:17 and 11:39. By all normal expectations, of course, um, the body would be decaying. Uh, and Martha warns when Jesus comes, look, when you open the door, there's going to be a smell. But the stone is rolled away, and here John points us to the, the big Easter story that we're yet to be told about, if you're reading through. And Jesus immediately offers a prayer of thanksgiving, which is a little strange when you think about it, because um, you might expect him to be more vigorous in, in you know, come on, let's pump it up, you know, let's, let's get something happening here. But instead, his response is to be thankful. In verse 30, 41, and it seems that John wants us to understand that, number one, there was no smell. Jesus knew that his prayer for Lazarus to remain free from decay had been answered. He expected that. And then, of course, there's a simple matter, we're told, of bringing him out and unwrapping him and releasing him back into normal life. 
I'm going to look at, first of all, the Old Testament understanding of resurrection and then quickly into the New Testament understanding before we go a little further. The story of Lazarus is remarkable to us today, but we have to remember that it was even more remarkable to those in the New Testament times. You see, mostly, not completely, but mostly, there was an understanding, as we heard once again in the reading, that resurrection was something that happened to everyone at the very end of time. And they didn't have an expectation of anything else really breaking through that. And we see that in Martha's response, don't we? You know, Daniel, the prophet Daniel, in Daniel 12, 2 to 3, projects forward to this final big resurrection of all believers. And he says this, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Every now and again in the Old Testament, however, we see resurrection being hoped for as something more personal. It's not denying that there will be a general resurrection at the end of time, but it's something that's birthed within the individual, for the individual. It's a personal hope, and we see that in verse 23 and 24. For example, in the midst of his despair, the prophet Job now, Job went through a lot, didn't he? We all, a lot. And he passionately declares in Job 19, 25, and 26, and I'm quoting from the King James, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though my skin worms destroy in this body, yet shall I see God. Can you see the personal bit there? Yes, it's going to happen to everyone at the end of time. But I have a hope that's personal. And I can actually hear Handel in my head when I say that. You know, I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day. How inspirational is that? And to the Old Testament mind, the possibility of resurrection is not simply an astonishing event. It's something that is birthed in pain and despair. What do we do when we go through a lot of pain and despair? We do the best to survive it. We call on God to help us survive it. But we also look for hope. So their expectation is birthed in pain and despair. It is rooted in the faith-filled expectation that God, that Yahweh, is a God of justice. Bad things have been happening to good people. But ultimately, he will put things right. The innocent may suffer in this world. But as Isaiah says in Isaiah 26, 19, your dead, he's not talking about any dead, he's talking to God, he's saying, your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. And Psalm 49, 49, 15 takes a similar line. It declares that the wise follower of Yahweh is ultimately triumphant. It says this, but God will redeem me from the realm of the dead, for he will surely take me to himself. God's justice is revealed in the afterlife. 
His mercy is extended to all those who focus their lives on Him. And the other point I have to make, of course, is that Yahweh, our God, is the only one who can raise people back to life. So it's not just a general hope in a general resurrection. It's not just a personal hope that I will be raised to life. But it's a question of justice. Things in this life, in this world, are often not just, are they? But resurrection counters that. Okay, the New Testament. In New Testament times, people continue to expect this general resurrection at the end of the time. And of course, we still have that today among ourselves. And Martha's response is typical of this. She says, when Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But at the same time, as I said, people are curious about, what about me? Where do I fit in this big scheme of things? The raising of Lazarus is not only amazing, but it's a sign it's one of a series of signs used by John to point to Jesus, to Jesus' divinity, and to Jesus' own resurrection, as I said, revealed later on, and to the justice of God. It introduces the whole idea of resurrection life. If Jesus is talking about not only being the I am, I am God, but I am resurrection and life, then doesn't that mean that he has introduced into the world a force that can never be defeated? Not only in regard to Lazarus coming to life again, not only in regard to Jesus' own resurrection, but also God's plan of salvation for every one of us. You see, there's something in this for us as well. Jesus tells us that he is the resurrection and the life in John eleven twenty five. These are complementary aspects of the same thing, aren't they? You see, resurrection comes before life because new life is a product of resurrection. Jesus died on the cross, but he rose to life again. And because he rose to life again and because he is the resurrection and the life, people were able to have hope. We were able to have hope. We are able to have hope. We see in, the, in John eleven thirty three that we're told that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And this is often quoted to imply that somehow Jesus is a very sentimental guy. And in a sense, he is. You know, we know elsewhere in the Bible that when he thought about the, the future of Jerusalem, it says he wept, two words, he wept. And he was prepared to be outward with his emotions. And no doubt he felt pain at the circumstances and the shared pain being experienced by Lazarus's sisters and the community around them. But the words translated as deeply moved actually imply anger and even indignation, even outrage. And so we have to ask ourselves, why would Jesus be angry? 
Some suggest he was angry at the effects of sin in the world, and I'm sure that's true. Others suggest that the weeping of some of the townspeople was somehow inauthentic. Um, but we don't know that. And perhaps it was because some of the Jews who were present, we know this, would later on oppose Jesus and lead to his death. Maybe he was angry at that, but it doesn't tell us. But what we do know from the Gospel of John, and particularly this section, is that the core issue is belief. And if the core issue is belief, then perhaps Jesus is outraged at how few are believing when the offer is there, when he is showing the way. All the signs referred to in the Gospel of John are not only declarations of who Jesus is, the I am, but they're repeated calls for people to believe. When Jesus says, did I not tell you, in 11.40, he's talking to his disciples, not to Martha. He's not berating Martha. You know, Martha believed and she had hope. And Jesus emphasizes faith in his prayer in verses 41 to 42. This is, after all, his mission. He prays, Lazarus emerges fully alive, and as I said before and hinted before, only the one who is the resurrection and the life can bring about resurrection and life. We see the high priest Caiaphas make a very significant statement. And John, as he writes the gospel, jumps on that because he can see something very important in it. Caiaphas says that it's better for one man to die than for a whole nation to perish. Now, Caiaphas meant it one way, but John sees how that predicts the true situation of Jesus' death and resurrection. John uses it to indicate that Jesus will die for other people. John sees a unifying purpose in Jesus' death, gathering together the true, true children of God and all who will come to faith in Jesus. Jesus' resurrection confirms that Jesus is the one who has the authority to give life. And elsewhere we see Jesus saying that. In John 10, 17, Jesus says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. He predicted that. And the next verse in John 10, 18, No one takes my life away from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. And let's just reflect a moment. If Jesus is our, the center of our lives, if he is God, if he is the one that we worship and, and surrender to, then this same God, this same Jesus, is the one who raises us to life as well. John uses resurrection almost as a, um, a metaphor, if you like. That's not to say that he doesn't use it in a real way, in a, in a 
a practical, everyday way, but he, he almost introduces an idea that he, he promotes throughout the gospel. And these are some of the things that he promotes as he talks about resurrection. He says, in effect, it involves confessing faith in Jesus, the Messiah. It is secured in the present, not at some distant judgment time. It's the result of an individual. Uh, they can already encounter and live out the life of the age to come. And faith is the evidence of that reality. And I believe as I look around here that most of us, if not all of us, have had that faith. We have seen who Jesus is, we have responded to who he is, and we believe. And that's the central point of the Gospel of John. Faith also is a personal decision. It's not really a national yearning. So here you see some of these ideas changing. Can you imagine, as I said, that this hope for resurrection was birthed out of pain? And you and I don't have to read too many books or watch too many documentaries to know that the Jewish people have suffered terribly over the years. And we see it in the Old Testament as well. And so you can understand their hope for resurrection. And of course ours through our, our circumstances as well. There's implications of a resurrection. You see, the disciples would have understood him as a prophet, mighty in works and deeds. And he was more particularly Israel's Messiah. And that would not be because they had believed that the Messiah, when he came, would be raised from the dead because the groundwork for that understanding had not really been formed. It would be because they, sorry, it would be because the Jesus that they knew had been tried and executed, specifically as a Messiah, as the Messiah, and suddenly this extraordinary event, it had actually reversed the judgments reversed the verdicts of both the Jewish and the Roman courts. Later in scriptures, the Apostle Paul will tell us that because God raised Jesus from the dead, believers are now aligned with Abraham himself, the absolute, absolute mark of faith we read in Hebrews, for example. And in Galatians, it says in Galatians 3, 7, understand that then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. And in Galatians 3, 14, he redeems us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might also come to the Gentiles. I don't know about you here, but I know that I fall into the Gentile category. Some people I know have thought of themselves Gentiles and subsequently found out that there's a Jewish faith and a Jewish lineage in their family. And what a wonderful thing that is because then they find that they have, if you like, two doors to the faith that Jesus provides. 
Lazarus's return, in summary, return to life foreshadows the new relationship that believing in Jesus has for us. Believing in Jesus forms us into a renewed covenant family. And isn't that what we see here, what we're living out? It assigns to Creator God the power and the glory which are properly His, the very thing that idolatry denies in Romans 4. Lazarus being raised is a wonderful event, but Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if only for this life we have hoped in Christ, we have all people most to be pitied. Yes, God's plan helps us in this life, but God's plan for you and I is so much larger than simply this life. 2 Corinthians says, even though we groan in our bodies, we will be further clothed through the process and the, the happening of our own resurrection in verse 4, just as Jesus was in his. Are you encouraged when you read about Jesus after the resurrection, after his resurrection? And he's fully human and he's fully divine and he has been clothed with eternal life in fullness. And that gives us hope. Christian writer Tom Wright says, no wonder the Herods, this has a resonance I think for today, no wonder the Herods and Caesars and the Sadducees of this world, ancient and modern, were and are eager to rule out all, possibly, all possibility of an actual resurrection. They are, after all, staking a counterclaim on the world. Isn't that true? In this, it is in this world that the tyrants and the bullies, including some intellectuals and cultural tyrants, try to rule the world by force. You can see that when you turn on the TV at night, can't you? People are trying to rule the world in various places by force. But they discover, if they have heard it, that resurrection implies that their greatest weapon, death and destruction, in fact, are not all-powerful, are not omnipotent. You've probably suffered many things and seen others suffer. The story of Lazarus pointing to Jesus I think is a, is, is a reassurance that this God of justice truly is a God of justice and will put things right. And that helps us in the midst of our troubles just as it did Lazarus' sisters and the Israelites before them. The this, this stands out to me so sharply. The raising of Lazarus shows us that God cares for individuals and is prepared to minister to individuals and their families not just a nation not just a political system or anything like that not even just a great end time event as wonderful as that is and of course we hope for that but let's remember that this Jesus cares for individuals we see that we see that in the case of Lazarus we see that 
as he relates to the sisters so graciously. The Jesus who raised Lazarus would also raise us up if our lives are his. John's message is, have faith. With Martha, we can say, I believe you, Jesus, are the Messiah, the Son of God. And with the Old Testament prophet Job, we can confidently proclaim that I know my Redeemer. I know my Redeemer. He is Jesus. And that through the resurrection of Jesus, through his resurrection life, you and I, if we believe, will see God in person. Do you believe? No heavy, heavy message there, but just an invitation. If you have never thought about it, this is the time to think about it. Have a read of chapter 11 of John and realize that God's plan is such a wonderful plan for you. Please accept it. Amen. Amen. Came from heaven.